Uh, once again, I want to say hi to everybody in the room, and especially hi to all the folks who are joining us online. It's Resurrection Sunday. So happy Easter to all of you. I'm, I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad you're here particularly for, for this message. This is the one day of the year when you don't have to work hard to talk about some of the most important things in life. This is a time when we think about ultimate questions, life and death. And, and people sometimes wonder, honestly, what happens to a person when they die? Does anybody really know? An old story, maybe. A, a woman is moving her business to a new location. She throws a big celebration to, to thank all of her colleagues and customers and employees. And as part of the celebration, she orders a, a huge bouquet of flowers. But somehow the florist and the busyness and the rush gets orders mixed up and mixes up her order with a funeral. And she ends up with a flower arrangement that says, we're so sorry for your loss. Uh, as hard as that might be, compare it to, to the florist who has to respond, noting that you think you've got problems with your event. I have to tell a family that just held a funeral with a big colorful arrangement that said, good luck in your new location. <laughs> think about that for just a moment. That's the big question, isn't it? Is there going to be a new location? Are you going to want to be there? Good luck with that. We wake up this morning, or I woke up anyway and read the news, and one of the things I read in the news was that yesterday Canada confirmed over 1 million cases of COVID-19, over 23,000 deaths, and, and this has been going on and on and on, and we wonder, will our poor world ever find peace? In the middle of all of that, from the echoes of small towns in the Mediterranean to the chambers of enormous cathedrals in Europe to momentous gatherings in Latin America and Africa to, to this little room and to rooms like it joining us online all across the province. We gather together in every continent, in every culture, People gather together on Sunday morning, and as you've already done, somebody will stand up and say, Julie, Jesus Christ is risen. And the people will respond, he is risen indeed. He is risen indeed. Now, I've cued you, but we can do better than that. Even smaller number in this room, we can do better than that. Those of you online, we'll be able to hear you from here if you do it loud enough. So here we go. Jesus Christ is risen. Right. Oh, I heard that indeed. Fantastic. Because it's that word indeed that we want to spend a few minutes talking about this morning. Uh, we live in a world, don't we, where that little word indeed can feel like a bit of a stretch. Indeed, for sure. No doubt about it. Absolutely. This is true. There is a new location risen indeed. But maybe, honestly, uh, for some of you, that's a little bit of a stretch. I mean, maybe if you're going to be honest about it, you're here to make somebody else in the family happy. They dragged you out of bed this morning. They said, you've got to watch it with us. They packed you in the car. You've got to come to church with us. You're here because somebody else wanted you here. 
Or maybe there was a time in your life when some of this stuff made sense. You used to be a follower of Jesus, but, but the years have passed and maybe the decades and all of that has ebbed away a little bit. Or maybe you, you know a little bit about Jesus, you admire Jesus, you think the teachings are wonderful, but the whole idea of a human being being resurrected, that just strikes you as a lot of wishful thinking. Well, whatever the reason, can I just say that I am delighted that you're here, whatever the reason. And if for any of those reasons, that word indeed gives you some pause, some reason to to stop, I, I want you to know that thoughtful people have wrestled with the idea of the resurrection from the very beginning, from the very first moment it was announced. In fact, That struggle, the struggle over the reality of the resurrection is the reason that the most famous, the most influential, the longest passage on hope and resurrection that's recorded in the Bible was written. It was written by Paul. It was written to a church in an ancient city called Corinth. And here's part of what Paul wrote. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. Paul says, how can some of you say, There is no resurrection of the dead. Now remember this about Paul. Paul is writing to churches in Corinth. So he's writing to people inside the church. These are people who they love God. They want to follow Jesus. But they find this idea, the idea of the resurrection, to be not credible. And so he goes on, he teases out the implications a little bit. Let's read onward in verse 13. He says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ himself has been raised. And our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Let's read on. And if Christ has not been raised, it says in verse 17, then your faith is futile. And you are still trapped in your sins. And it also means that all those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. That is, they've died. And if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are a people most to be pitied. Why? Because we're just deluded. And finally, in verse 20 comes the declaration. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That's where we get the little word indeed that is used on Resurrection Sunday on Easter morning across all cultures, across all continents, across all boundaries. Not just Christ has been raised, but Christ has been raised indeed. Yeah. In fact, in In the language that Paul was using, the language in which the New Testament was written, that word indeed is the first word in the sentence, just to make it kind of emphatic. Paul's way of saying, we're betting everything on this. He's staking his life on this. So today, Easter Sunday, uh, I want to camp out on that word indeed and do so just by asking two questions. The first question Why did Paul use that word? Why did he say indeed? Why is it that he and others were so convinced? Why? But the second question, maybe the more important question, why does this matter? 
Why does this matter so much? Why would Jesus' followers stake their lives on this truth? And what does that mean for you? When it comes to the first question, why does the Bible say indeed? A lot of folks are kind of going to assume that that those people living 2,000 years ago, pre-scientific and therefore pretty gullible, pretty naive, that they would be easily persuaded by a myth of resurrection. It was easy to convince people back then of just about anything, right? In actual fact, it's good for us to know that it didn't happen that way at all. Initially, everybody who heard about the resurrection was skeptical and nobody believed it. And we're not talking about people outside that circle of Jesus. We're talking about the people inside the inner circle. The ones who would be most inclined to believe it were the ones who said, "Uh uh-uh. The first witnesses, and and we heard this account read this morning by the Reverend Denise Gillard. The first witnesses were some women who were following Jesus. They went to the tomb there on Easter morning. Why did they go? They didn't go because they were expecting to find a resurrected body. They went there planning to anoint and care for a dead body. They got there and they found that the stone had been moved. And they found a messenger, angel is a messenger, same word. A messenger saying, you're here looking for Jesus of Nazareth, the one who was crucified. He's not here. He's risen. And they didn't respond immediately, of course he is. He he said he would be risen, risen indeed. No. Instead, look at their response. This is in Mark 16, verse 6, and then in verse 8. It says, describing them trembled and bewildered. The women went out and they fled from the tomb. And they said nothing to anyone. Why? Because they were afraid. See, that very first announcement, Christ is risen wasn't met with faith. It received confusion, fear, and silence. When eventually the women found the courage to tell the rest of the disciples what they'd heard, you'd expect there at least faith would be something that erupted. After all, Jesus had been telling them about this. This was the great victory that they were anticipating. Look what it says, though. Luke 24, verse 11. The disciples didn't believe the women. Because the women's words seem to them like nonsense. Again, these are the disciples that Jesus had been leading and teaching all of these years. Didn't believe. By the way, is this the first time a group of men stubbornly refused to listen to a group of women? No, it is not. And by the way, one of the reasons why, whatever you may think of the story of the resurrection... It's kind of difficult to accept the idea that somebody just made it up in that culture. Because in that day, women weren't regarded as credible witnesses. In fact, in courts of law, women weren't allowed to give testimony because they weren't regarded as credible or believable. So nobody would make up a story of resurrection in which the women were the first and the primary witnesses. However, in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we're told explicitly that, that the women were the first and the primary witnesses of the resurrection. And it just, it kind of gives the whole account that feel of authenticity. 
But you know, the skepticism, it just kept going. This is from the Gospel of John. John chapter 20, verse 19, the words that we heard today. It said, on the first day of the week, when the disciples were gathered together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came. I mean, there ought to be an exclamation point right there. Jesus came, and he stood among them. In other words, now at the very end of the first Easter, after everything that had transpired, the disciples weren't walking around saying, risen indeed, risen indeed. No, to their own embarrassment, all of the New Testament Gospels record their skepticism and their slowness to believe. And they were skeptical for the same reason that we would be, right? They knew, like we do, that corpses don't reanimate. They knew that you just don't expect to find life in a dead body. I mean, even in the ancient world, maybe they were pre-scientific people, but they had noticed by now that dead people remain dead. They're not the first, we're not the first people in history to discover that. In fact, what it took, it took two realities blended together, happening simultaneously, to convince skeptical people, the women, the disciples, and all the others, that Jesus was risen indeed. Now, the first reality was that the tomb was empty. Now, that on its own is not enough. The fact that the stone had been rolled away and there was no body present, of course, somebody could have taken it. Uh, Maybe, maybe he wasn't really as dead as people thought that he was. And in a mighty act of strength, he pushed the stone aside and ran away. But, but the fact that the tomb was empty is only part of what convinced people. Here's the other part. The report spread that not only was Jesus not where he was supposed to be in the tomb, it turns out Jesus was everywhere else. He was there with Mary, telling her not to be afraid. He was there with Thomas saying, my friend, you don't need to doubt anymore. Look, my hands, my side. He was, there with, he was there with Peter, who you remember had rejected him, had denied him three times, saying, Peter, my friend, you don't have to live with your guilt and failure anymore. I'm back. I'm alive. He was with the disciples, who were unspeakably discouraged, saying, you don't have to give up. And one day, sometime later, he came to the Apostle Paul. Now, Paul had heard about these people running around saying, Jesus is risen. Paul was a bright man, brilliant, pedigreed, educated. He's not some gullible rube who, who would immediately fall for a lie. In fact, Paul was convinced the story of the resurrection was a hoax and a lie. And he spent considerable time and energy persecuting the people who spread that lie. Until one day, one day Jesus, the risen Jesus, came to Paul and changed his life. And through Paul and others like him, began to change the world. See, the the juxtaposition of those two realities is what convinced people. Jesus was not in the tomb, but it's like... He was everywhere else. I mean, you could have said it was grave robbers, except he keeps appearing to people. And you could have said that those appearances were hallucinations, except that the tomb was empty. The two went together. And it was the combination of the empty tomb and the appearance of the risen Jesus 
that led those first followers of Jesus to believe that something unprecedented, something unbelievable had simply happened, and that changed everything. And actually, there is no other good, credible way to explain the sudden, explosive emergence of the church. People going from frightened and discouraged and hiding in rooms behind locked doors because of their fear to people who are courageously and joyfully following this man even even sometimes to the point of death. One of the ways you know that Christianity is unique among religions is that, at least as far as I know, it's the only one in which we know the exact day that it all started. It's not true of any other faith. This is very significant, you know. As a teacher, as good a teacher as Jesus was, nobody said, we've got to start a new religion to spread these stories, the prodigal son, the good Samaritan, and so on. No, that's not what happened. On Saturday, after this man had been crucified, Christianity did not exist. On Sunday, it did. On Saturday, as a matter of historical record, no human being could have started it. And on Sunday, by Sunday night, no human being could have stopped it. There was only one explanation that made sense. Jesus Christ is risen, and he is risen indeed. Now, why does that matter? It's not just that it's true. That truth needs to matter. In fact, it it matters more than anything else in the world. It, It matters because now the things that Jesus had been saying, they are vindicated. It means they're right. It means he knew what he was talking about when he talked about God and about the love of God. And it means that if you trust this Jesus, if you follow him, he promised that nothing could separate you from God, no matter how bleak or dark it is. It means that ultimately you have nothing to fear. That's why Paul wrote, this is 1 Corinthians 15, 14, if you're following along. He said, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is futile. Anybody who's ever preached on Easter, they can probably relate to what Paul's saying. Uh, Trying to get an Easter message right, just because of the weight of this event, it's it's a daunting thing, right, Pastor Sheldon? It has weight to it. I, I was working on this one, and I was kind of feeling the pressure, kind of anxious that, that it's not going to be up to par. It's not going to be good enough. So I went back, and I read through some of my previous Easter messages, and I realized they weren't all that good either, and it made me at least feel at ease. Because really, the Easter message is very simple. Jesus Christ who died for your sins, who died to express the sacrificial love and mercy and grace of God, who who died on a wooden cross so that sin and death and hell and guilt, all these things get defeated. That Jesus Christ is risen, and he is risen indeed. Now, if it turns out that that's not true, that if Jesus had not been raised, if we find his body someday moldering away in a tomb somewhere in, in ancient Palestine, it just it doesn't matter how clever all the preaching is in any church. There's no real hope. There's, there's no new location. 
But if it is true, then the preaching isn't futile, no matter how inadequate it might be. Because the task of this message and, and messages like it that are being offered all around the world this morning is not to persuade or to inspire or to challenge or to change hearts. Only God can do those things. It's simply to point to that one great fact, that one great hope, that the only firm foundation that allows a human being to face life and to face death is this, that Jesus Christ is risen. And more importantly, that he's still risen. That the tomb was empty, that he wasn't there, but thank God that means that he is here. It means the most important thing that we can do with this present life is, is to kind of rehearse and to prepare and to anticipate the life that is to come. That's what Jesus really meant when he said, pray this, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Let's get a little taste of what awaits us happening here right now. Good luck with your new location. But let's live as if a little bit of that location is seeping into the world right now. I realize, and so do you, that there's lots of people who will still believe that the resurrection, as nice an idea as it is, is still just wishful thinking. And there'll be lots of people who don't want to believe. And, and that will go on, and it will continue to go on after you and I die. But, you know, there's a sense in which, in which wishful thinking kind of works both ways. It also means that there's a, lot, there's a lot of people who might not wish for the existence of God who may have to give an account. There's this philosopher whose writings I like quite a lot. His name is Thomas Nagel. He's not a believer, but he put the issue like this. He said, I, I want atheism to be true. And I'm made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. He goes on to say, it is just as irrational to be influenced in one's beliefs by the hope that God does not exist as by the hope that God does exist. And honestly, sometimes people hope that there is no God because if there is a God, that's kind of going to be an inconvenient truth, isn't it? It's kind of going to interfere with my life. Well, here's where the Easter story, it gets really personal and actually it gets kind of costly. Paul believed, the, the Bible repeats this refrain, that the reason that the resurrection matters so much is that Jesus is still in the resurrection business. As it was with him, so it is with you. But just as it was with Jesus, so also for you, the resurrection and the cross, they go together. Easter isn't just about resurrection. It's about the resurrection of a crucified man. And what that means for you and me is that, that there's probably some stuff in our life that we're going to have to die to. Some old habits, some sin, some ego, whatever it is. We leave that behind and then we get raised up to something new and wonderful. This is how Paul put it. 
1 Corinthians 15, verse 36. He said, what you sow, this little seed, your life, what you sow in your life does not come back to life until it dies. And we see this. An addict who's hopelessly enslaved by her addiction, it's killing her. And then one day she surrenders. She turns over her life and her will to God. That's a resurrection. It's, it's a miracle for her and for her family. I've seen marriages get resurrected. I've seen families get resurrected. I've seen people in despair get resurrected. I've seen people face cancer. I've seen people face death. I've seen people lying in a hospital room in a bed, knowing that they will never get out, get resurrected. I've seen, I've known people in prison, trapped in a cell. They've not been out of it in years. And God comes into that cell and there's a little resurrection that happens. So where does God want to do resurrection in you? It's the question I want to leave with you this morning. Where does God need to be at work in your life? And to get you started, I want to invite you to watch a bunch of stories that we're going to share on the screen. As you're watching them, to keep a little prayer conversation with God, to ask in that conversation, say, God, where do you want to do a resurrection in my life? Let's take a look. And ask you if you'll close your eyes and bow your head with me. You know that one day a man died for you. That this man, Jesus, hung on a cross for you. That he poured out God's love and God's grace and God's mercy. And if you want to, today, however far you feel like you may have fallen, whatever doubts or guilt that you might bring, you can punch a reset button in your life. You can do that right now. I want to invite you to do that. And if you feel a nudge, a prompt from God that this is the moment, don't let it pass. Can join me and simply pray this prayer. You say, God, I confess my need for you. And I repent of my wrongdoing and my sin and of my brokenness. And I ask you, Lord, to forgive me and cleanse me and give me a new start. And I declare my intent from this day forward as you can help me, and I know you will. My intent to follow Jesus as my guide and my friend and as the master of my life. And I promise you, I promise you that if you pray that prayer from the heart, God honors that. And you have a hope in him, and it's a hope that can never be taken away. 
God, I pray for everyone listening to these words. These words that, that promise resurrection. I pray for marriages. I pray for families. I pray for people in the grips of depression or addiction or failure or a wound. I pray for every heart. I pray for every broken heart. And we pray it in the power of the resurrected Jesus. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed.